hint as to what we're going to talk about what could we possibly be <laughs> talking about today <laughs> well hello and welcome i am megan and i'm ello and this is modern medieval the podcast Woo! <laughs> so today we've got the lovely amelia who's with us and she is a an art historian like us. She was on our class. And so without further ado, welcome Amelia. Hello. Hello. Hey, hey. We are so excited to have her kind of continue our theme with what we were talking about last week with my friend Nick about but in a different light. Yes, in a different way. Um, about architecture. So if you didn't pick that up from the <laughs> sound clips we were playing, <laughs> we're, yeah, we're not talking there weren't trains in the medieval times we're not no. talking about medieval uh trains that'd be kind of cool i wonder if like da vinci, well i guess da vinci was a bit more renaissance but like if there are any kind of sketches for transport vehicles we could probably make links between when people would travel from one place to another and like a big convoy the kind of caravans of loads of carriages they'd make yeah and like horses the, yeah like when the medieval train yeah going through or uh pilgrimages or military, because yeah. caravan, but also like Wagon. train is a term, and you think of like a train of a a gown, nice mm -hmm. robe. I wonder if that, like etymologically, when that occurred. Anyway, media. <laughs> how are you doing today? <laughs> I'm doing well, thank you. I'm really excited to be here. So thanks for oh, having me. We're oh, so happy to have you here. It's always nice to have people from Bob's class it's just nice to hear for context um we used to have little presentations of um snippets of our essay before we would write them and so we kind of know what Emilia's essay is about but we don't really so it's just really exciting to hear you speak about it um it's always interesting to have different takes on the med medievalism or um medieval tropes or modern medieval um definitions and so it's just cool to to be able to do this yes definitely um and before we start just quickly, <laughs> just for both of you so i uh, i googled the word train so it comes from the latin word trahir which means oh. to pull or draw and then it went to old french uh trahiner, then to old french train or train and then eventually into middle english train which means delay Oh, ironic. English trains. Um, and the little blurb on the bottom says, Middle English, as a noun in the sense of delay. Yet Latin, trahir, pull, draw. Early noun senses were trailing part of a robe and retinue. The latter gave rise to line of traveling people or vehicles. Later, a connected series of things. Ooh. Hmm. 
So our guess was correct. Yeah. Uh, go us. Masters are worth something. <laughs> so our audience, Emilia, could you briefly tell us what your essay is about? Because I feel like we haven't said that yet. <laughs> yeah. Um, so I picked a couple of sites and buildings in London that I thought really showed the idea of a modern medieval building. So, of course, you know, you could choose from the many medieval Gothic revival buildings in London, such as the Houses of Parliament or St Pancras train station or, you know, some of the many others. Um, I did actually choose St Pancras as one of them and the other I'll talk about in a little bit. But I wasn't only talking about those buildings, I was talking about the more modern contemporary buildings that were built around them and next to them. And, and I was talking about how these kind of became a modern, modern medieval. Because, for example, one of the other sites I talked about was the British Library, mm-hmm. right between St Pancras and King's Cross. Um, and that was finished in the 90s. So you really can't say that's a Victorian Gothic revival building at all. Um, and you'd obviously say it's quite modern and contemporary if you look at it, because it's got these, you know, sleek red brick facade. It's very tall. It's very modern looking. And it sort of rises out of the landscape as this big punk, this big chunk of red bricks. But when looked at next to St Pancras and sort of echoes it and duplicates it and distorts it a little and kind of keeps bringing it into the modern day. Very cool. cool. Before we kind of get into that nitty gritty of your essay and the case examples that we have selected because we think they're the most familiar and you spend a good amount of time in your essay, so the British Library and St Pancras train station, uh, could you briefly just tell us, Amelia, what your relationship to the medieval is? Like, yeah. are you a medievalist? <laughs> are you not? <laughs> good question. Um, I think I could trace this in so many directions. Because on first thought, I would say, nope, I'm not a medievalist. I'm an art historian. You know, I primarily study 17th century Dutch stuff. Like, that. <laughs> that's not medieval. But then I can <laughs> think of various things which really, you know, have fueled my interest in the modern medieval and one would be the class we did but even before that I guess the first art history project I ever did um, and this was in school and we didn't have an art history program so it's it's something I did it was this English sort of semi A-level qualification called an extended project and I did that on the pre-Raphaelites and I've I've always loved the pre-Raphaelites love them or hate them they're really interesting right just undeniably they're interesting at least and I was writing about sort of the relations of text and image and their work and in their paintings and you know sort of looking at you know maybe Alfred Lord Tennyson's poem The Lady of Shalott and how that relates to the various paintings of the Lady in Shalott stuff like that (laughs) and I think my interest in the pre-Raphaelites came from an exhibition I saw tons of years ago I think it was in 2012 so that's a scary amount of years ago I must have been like 14, 15, (laughs) Um, and that was called Pre-Raphaelites Victorian Avant-Garde that was it for Tate Britain and already that fascinated me then I'm not sure at the time I knew I wanted to study history of art that was a great exhibition and now that I think about it I think the title you know Victorian Avant-Garde even Mm -hmm. shows then that they're painting these medieval style paintings but it was still you know avant-garde it was new it was fresh it was exciting it was quite different to a lot of what else was going on in the period so yeah maybe I've I've been interested in the modern medieval that long but yeah I'm also also really like medieval music that's like the other side of what I like to do I like to do a lot of art and I like to do a lot of music that's really years, cool yeah. yeah for years when I was younger I played in a Kaylee band so Ooh. are you guys familiar with Kaylee? Living but, in Scotland I yeah. 
yeah. went to a few Kayleys. So. Yeah, so it's, I think it's a Scottish name for them, but they're sort of traditional folk, traditional band dancers. Um, and my band, we actually played a mixture of Scottish folk music, Welsh, a bit of Irish, a bit of English. So it's kind of music from all the aisles and dances. Um, and they're just really fun. Lots of people do them at weddings and stuff or to celebrate Burns Night in Scotland for the poets. That's so cool. Um, and yeah, obviously this this folk music has transformed over centuries because it's like all tradition, right? But it really feels like it's connected to an older time because they are traditional melodies that, you know, people have been playing for hundreds of years. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, that, that was a way I've always felt quite connected to, you know, feeling just a bit more, I'm going to use the word rustic. Yeah. <laughs> Great, especially because I find that medieval music is quite kind of niche genre. Mm. And oftentimes, a lot of people, if they think of medieval music, will, I think, inevitably go to like Gregorian chants or something more in regards to the church Mm. rather than um, some of the really great instruments, tolls with like uh, lutes and things Mm. like that. Or they think like Renaissance fair, which Elo and I talked about in a previous episode, is really just off hodgepodge of about 500 yeah. years worth of <laughs> different influences plus mythological things so. <laughs> yeah that's such a fun way to have like a relationship to the medieval without necessarily being a medievalist just to bring in disney because <laughs> <laughs> disney's maybe we, become... do, maybe we should do advertisements for them yeah <laughs> disney give us your money you have a lot it. of it <laughs> but did you watch any Disney growing up, Amelia? I did. Actually, one of the other essays I wrote a couple months ago was on Disney's Fantasia and the relationship between music and animation and that. <laughs> Two of my favourites, which are definitely underrated Disney movies, are The Robin Hood and The Sword and the Stone. That is super underrated. Um, you know, Marlon and Arthur and Oz. Yeah. Fantastic. I, admit, I don't remember that film. So that one's a quite important, really. Super forgotten, but fab. No, it's just great because, you know, of course, we had Janina talk about Sleeping Beauty. Mm-hmm. Last week, I brought up Hunter Notre Dame, and mm-hmm. we're creating all those links. Yeah. <laughs> but all the Disney. For a lot of people, especially our age, Disney was kind of an inspirational vehicle. Mm-hmm. And as we spoke with Janina, we kind of think of it as being medieval rather than this no time, perhaps a bit later. So I was just curious to if that had any influence, but it's great that your two favorites are actually... Underrated. Underrated and quite arguably medieval. some of the most medieval ones. Very medieval, yeah. yeah. I think I mostly just enjoyed Robin Hood as well because I grew up in Nottingham. So mm. the Nottingham, the Robin Hood, Shadow Forest. Love that. Um, and this is also kind of a, Disney was a fun way to kind of bridge into our next question which is about how you consider medievalism in your essay, Amelia, because it seemed to us medievalism is such a loaded word that really can just go in numerous different directions. Mm-hmm. Um, and Disney is a great example of that. But it seems like in your essay and the approach with architecture that medievalism is, you're using it in a bit of a different way than we've discussed previously. Can you kind of Tell us a little bit about how you were thinking of and using medievalism. Sure. So really in the essay, I didn't try and try and define my own sense of medievalism. But I actually opened the essay by considering a definition by this medievalist called David Matthews, who wrote this book called Medievalism. So right. <laughs> you can see my like essay researching brain going, perfect. <laughs> um, Fair enough. Uh, and he defined medievalism as a, as a manifestation of the medieval in the present day. 
Mm -hmm. um, so I really use that as my jumping off point um, and kind of frame the whole essay around why I thought these sites were medieval is because they kind of kept the medieval going in the present day and in kind of each present moment that they've been around. So whether that be for 20 years, if it's the British Library, or 150, if it's or maybe 200, um, you know, if it's a Victorian site. Cool. I feel like also it's a different way of thinking of the medieval and medievalism. Yeah, definitely. It's because architecture, especially because we're not architects, so it's a bit more of, I find, superficial. At least in my, I don't want to say that we're like superficial gals, but... You know. <laughs> <laughs> well, our knowledge of architecture may be superficial. Yeah, like I kind of will look at a building and especially because so prolific with gothic revival so we're talking about 19th century like that's just you're like that is gothic and that is medieval like and then you think of churches and all of that but the way that you are using the medieval you're kind of going more I mean of course St. Pancras is definitely in that category with you know it has the turrets and the spires but then because of the uh polychromy of the, the brick and everything it's also gesturing towards a different type of medieval than we normally think of, uh, just kind of off the bat. And then the British Library especially, which I'm really excited for us to talk about that. But yeah, your medievalism, the way you're thinking of it, at least if I'm understanding correctly, is much more of the uh, how do we think of the medieval in a very kind of broad way, even though the architects were definitely aware of what they were doing. But for an everyday person, how we think of and coexist with the medieval in a progressive way. Progressive is perhaps not the right way, but like... In our everyday lives. Yeah. Yeah. Um, no, definitely, yeah. I think I was just thinking about how, you know, the medieval persists and it continues. And mm -hmm. it's not just, you know, very tied to a specific, you know, concrete moment in history, mm -hmm. 700 or whatever years ago, but instead it just you know, continues through time. And it. I'm thinking about it in these sites, which otherwise they have no concrete historical link to, mm -hmm. you know, the 13th or 14th centuries. And they weren't built then. And they might not necessarily look like they were trying to look like they were built then. But instead they have this... Their essence. Yeah, yeah. I was going to say aura, but that's such a loaded word to use in history. <laughs> about essence essence. too. <laughs> yeah. But yeah, just this vibe. <laughs> Yeah, no, definitely. Like they're not reenactments or no. creations. Yeah, they, they kind of get that tangible medievalness. Yeah. I think that's why medievalism is such a fun word because it's like the ism. It's kind of, you know, when you add like ish or e at the end of a word, it's kind of like, <laughs> yeah, it's got a little bit of that. Barely there. But mm. it's not. Mm. But yeah, just wanted to kind of clarify for our audience if they were like, we've talked about medievalism before, but when we talked about like uh, laughter and, but I feel like that was in a bit of a different way because it was interacting with the medieval in a much more, of course, satirical way. But also I think that it was on a different end of the spectrum of medievalism. And so I guess the kind of question that follows is, how did you come up with this? Like, why those sites? And was it because you walked past them on a daily basis or? <laughs> yeah, um, <laughs> def definitely that. So the, the other site, which I haven't, really talked about yet is um a church in Pimlico mm -hmm. so just a bit south of central London but still above the river um near Victoria and it's a church called St James the Less mm -hmm. and it's surrounded by this sort of 60s 70s housing estate called Lillington Gardens so it's that site and then St Francis and the British Library um and I think I chose these because I've always really been interested in architecture 
Mm-hmm. Actually, at first I wanted to do a course called, when I was applying to uni, it's called History of Art and History of Architecture. Mm-hmm. I was really into it. And actually before then I wanted to be an architect. Always really liked architecture. And there's, there was so many Gothic Bible buildings in London and it just seemed this mm-hmm. perfect avenue to explore. I've always loved St Pancras. This is this big monument. King's Cross has always been my you know, way in and out of London because mm-hmm. I'm based in the East Midlands. And so luckily I'm on this train line that goes straight into the heart of London at King's Cross. It takes about an hour from where I live, which is really fast. And so I've, I've always come into London through that way and left London. So it's kind of, apart from King's Cross itself, the last you know, big thing that I see. It's quite representative of London in some way for me. And similarly with the British Library, I've been lucky enough to like go in there and study a few times looking at books. So it's been a building I've had sort of contact with and been within. And similarly with St James the Less, this church, my aunt works and lives around there. Um, she's the vicar of the church, so I've been in. Oh, as well. Wow! And it's it's also amazing inside. I didn't have time to talk about it in the essay, but it's full of these sort of Byzantine-inspired mosaics. It's mm-hmm. really fascinating. There's structural polychromy all over the inside, and yes, just as fascinating inside as it is outside. So kind of a personal, yeah, thing. personal connections. Beautiful. Also, just the way that you were talking about, you know, King's Cross and St. Pancras. For a lot of our listeners, they are kind of the same and they yeah. are just across the street from each other, but they're radically <laughs> different. Part yeah. of that is because, and I'm not trying to get political, but I'm just talking about something that we all grew up with, but Harry Potter and Harry Potter yes. and the Cambridge Secrets, <laughs> they use the visuals of St. Pancras, especially Chamber of Secrets when they're in the flying Fort Anglia. Mm-hmm. I mean, that is. St. Pancras, the the red brick and the turrets, but then they go into King's Cross and they're not the same building. They're not the same structure, but also there is something about when you exit King's Cross, you are just instantly in front of St. Pancras. And so you have that experience because if you were leaving St. Pancras itself, you would be coming out of that building. So it would be behind you. Mm -hmm. So you wouldn't have that moment of the encounter. And so I think there is something kind of unique with that. Mm -hmm. And the British Library, for those of you who haven't been to London in a while and don't remember where these places are, the British Library is about 100 metres away, 200 metres away. Mm. Yeah, So they're kind of like geographically in the same, well, they are in the same area. Yeah, Yeah, it's basically across the street from St Pancras. So like if you're looking on a map at the far right, if you were looking at them like from the street, I guess, looking north, you have King's Cross. And that is um, more like a sandstone colored building. And then you have St. Pancras. So big castle looking building, stunning. And then to the left, yeah, like like a football field away, not far at all, is the British Library, (laughs) which is 1970s red brick. So for our listeners who may not be familiar with these buildings, but you were wondering whether you could tell us more about them. Yeah, of course. So I'll start with St. James Aless and Lillington Gardens. So the Church of St. James Aless, which I'm trying to think how I can shorten that. I'll just call it St. James from now on because it's quite a mark. Okay. That's sort of your typical Victorian revival church in London. It was built in the same sort of period as a lot of the others. And it was built by this architect called George Edmund Street. Mm-hmm. kind of in the late 1850s to 1860s. But also this church was the first that departed from a very English Gothic revival. So looking back to old English churches and kind of reinventing them, the one that was a bit more European. Mm-hmm. So if you look at the outside of it, it has this very tall tower 
or Campanile, um, which is sort of the focal point of the church, and it's in this red brick, and that's in a very northern Italian style mm-hmm. of tower. Um, and it has it is built in red brick and a lot of structural polychromy on the outside and sort of pointed windows, which quite a big nod to Ruskin's very Venetian-inspired Gothic. So John Ruskin was a Victorian art critic um, who really, really loved Venetian Gothic and Venetian architecture, and as well as being a big supporter and critic of the Pre-Raphaelites, also was very involved in the Victorian revival. And he wrote quite a few books, including one called The Stones of Venice, where he waxed lyrical. But he he's, he wrote about the architecture there, and that was quite a big influence for street in building St. James the Less. And then around the church is this housing estate called Lillington Gardens. And like I said, this was built in the 60s and 70s by an architectural duo called Darborn and Dark. Um, and this was built as social housing, meant to be in this new style, but very, you know, livable and kind of built for the people. So instead of being, you know, very tall, multi-storied buildings that are sort of overcrowded and very densely populated, they're only a few houses and flats high, still having quite a dense population of people, you know, to give people houses, but still being very socially inclusive and livable. So it was designed to include lots of green spaces, shops, you know, playground areas for children growing up. And it's sort of, you know, meant to be not just a house, but sort of a place for all areas of people's lives. And in their, you know, initial proposal, the architects, you know, wrote that it was meant to be designed with social intent. In another little medieval link, actually ends up looking like medieval housing concepts of an architect called Pugin, mm-hmm. A.W. Pugin, who actually was involved in putting together the Houses of Parliament, which lots of people know as this, you know, giant medievally looking structure in London. Um, comes up on the news a lot at the moment, I think, <laughs> you know, with all these sort of little turrets and fine stone tracery details. It also features Big Ben, which is yeah. perhaps the most, one of the most iconic, iconic yeah. locations also, in London. Isn't it one of those visited places by um, tourists as well? Isn't it like on the route that people yeah, have? Definitely. Yeah. It's across from Westminster. So, yeah. I mean, it's... Yeah. It's, like it's right there in the heart. Terrifying tube stop from Victoria. <laughs> you just walk out and it's like wall upon Victoria wall. Victoria is so difficult to get out of. It's true. Hey, I've gotten lost there so many times. That and uh, Houston for me. <laughs> <laughs> I've only done Houston once and it was during Corona. So it was like very apocalyptic. But oh Victoria is the fucking worst. Expletive necessary because it is yeah, the entryway true. into like one of Dante's rings of hell. <laughs> I hate um, it. <laughs> Sorry, Amelia, continue. You were talking about Parliament and Pugin. <laughs> yeah, so, yeah, that's the Pugin guy. And he, he um, architect, sorry. And he wrote this book about how, you know, medieval housing should look and compared to Victorian housing, which, you know, there are a lot of slums really at the time. Mm-hmm. Um, and instead, you know, design these buildings, uh, living areas organised around a church and Lillington Gardens and St James has ended up like that. That was that was meant to be a, a very short link to the medieval. Which <laughs> it's a great much. link to the medieval. It's lovely to hear because to me, when when you spoke about this in was it in November, and then even rereading the essay, I was just like, this. I don't know how she's gotten to this. Like, how did she make these links? And you know, it's great to hear the answer. I love it. Yeah, <laughs> I agree. I mean, it's not a convincing essay. <laughs> 
Oh, no, it is. It's so interesting. It's, it shows ways of thinking of the medieval in a modern context or like how mm-hmm. they're linked. Yeah, definitely. I think it also really helped, at least in your kind of thought process, perhaps, that because you have such a personal relationship to St. James the Less, you're very kind of physically and emotionally aware of Lillington Gardens if it's across mm-hmm. the street. I kind of find sometimes there's a space that you visit frequently and you might take it for granted. And then you learn something in school or on a documentary or something. I don't know. And it kind of illuminates a connection that you never really considered before. It's so interesting. Thank you for coming here to speak to us about it. Well, especially because um, the way that you describe Lillington Gardens, um, since this is audio, you know, our people, I mean, they can Google it, but we can't, (laughs) you know, have like a presentation and be like pointing to it. But as you were saying, it's not as it's not very tall. It's only like two or three floors, correct? If that yes. About two or three. So yeah. around that. But as you said, it's much more the way that it's kind of stacked and situated is kind of cantilevered. So that means that like the balconies extend into space without certain types of supports mm-hmm. to allow airiness. Mm-hmm. And thinking about if we go back to what we were speaking with in Janina and Sleeping Beauty a few weeks ago. We briefly discussed um, when we were talking about the forest horizontality and verticality. And so something like St. Pancras seems to be a bit more of the vertical as well as the visual, whereas something like Lillington Gardens and the British Library, which we'll get into, uh, is a bit more of like that horizontal element of the medieval. A British Library, I think, is a bit more of a combination of both. I think that's fascinating. I don't know if you have any comments on that, Amelia. Yeah, I think. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> No, yeah, yeah, it's lovely. The site in Pimlico really unites the two, so both this horizontality and verticality, because mm-hmm. when these architects designed the estate, they left it deliberately so that the church tower of St. James the Less sort of rose out of the middle. Mm-hmm. So it was still this beacon, you know, in the landscape that was, you know, the focal point and visible from afar, and it showed that not just, you know, there were houses there. Um, yeah. There was this, you know, church tower as well, so, you know, place for worship, place for God, um, and sort of social haven in a way which is very medieval i mean you know the 11th 12th 13th century that's part of the reason why the cathedrals and churches are so tall not just as a gift to god and ascension and you know showing financial power because that was also part of it but so you could see a town on the horizon and the first thing you would see is the spire or tower of whatever building they had so this is a very subtle but also very in your face but kind of way to gesture towards or like think about that and then also the community element we've talked so much about how the medieval is very very communal and so it has that atmosphere the medieval as well where you're in a shared space so yeah a great modern medieval atmosphere yeah (laughs) Um, so we can get into like the nitty-gritty I'm really excited about the British Library in your essay Amelia you talk about modern medieval buildings and then you duplicate modern and italicize ones. You talk about modern, <laughs> modern medieval buildings. Um, so this is going to be kind of a multifold question. So first, can you tell us what a modern medieval building is? And then what the difference is with a modern squared <laughs> building? And also, <laughs> I'm just curious as to why you chose to duplicate modern and not have a prefix like a contemporary modern or neo-modern <laughs> or hyper-modern or something like that. Great question. Um, <laughs> so, yeah, in, in, in the essay, 
and in, in my thinking, the modern medieval was was the buildings that we typically, you know, discussed in classes, modern medieval, or you know, you might generally think of modern medieval. So Gothic revival buildings. So especially in this essay, that would have been the St. James the Less Church and St. Pancras, because they were, well, at the time they were built, they were modern in the 19th century, but also they were meant to evoke this medievalness. So that was the modern medieval, but this modern, modern medieval, I kind of put forth as the sites around these modern medieval buildings, um, the ones you wouldn't usually look at and, you know, think twice, you wouldn't blink at it, you wouldn't think, oh, cool, another revival building. Um, instead, these are modern or contemporary buildings. So okay. this housing estate or the British Library, which are built undeniably in a modern contemporary style, but still kind of reflect and adapt and well, manipulate it sounds negative, but kind of, yeah, adapt this modern medieval style and, you know, keep oscillating between something quite medieval looking and quite modern looking. So, for example, that might be by reflecting the red brick or, you know, reflecting the structural polychromy or something like that. That's so cool. And so if like for visual purposes, can you think off the top of your head of like a modern medieval building par excellence and then a modern, modern medieval building? Oh, good question. Um, yeah, I think there are a few other sites like that, especially in London. One that comes to mind, it might not necessarily be, you know, true medieval or true modern medieval, but the Globe Theatre. So just in Southwark, just right on the, you know, southern side of the Millennium Bridge, there's, well, what's typically known as Shakespeare's Theatre. And of course, he wasn't, you know, truly medieval. He was 16th into the 17th century. Um, but that's a building that, you know, burnt down, got destroyed, had um, failed pyrotechnics in their theatre plays, but has been rebuilt to look like that original style. Mm-hmm. So that creates quite a, you know, a modern medieval building. And then next to it, there are all these theatres and buildings, you know, built in the 20th century and even some in the 21st that sort of, you know, create a dialogue with it. So, for example, right near it, is the Tate Modern. And that's in an old industrial power building. And yeah, that has been transformed into this, well, haven of the modern and contemporary, right? Right. Full of all this fantastic modern and contemporary art. And then that sort of creates this dialogue between all the buildings around it. So far as to call that area a little modern, modern medieval as well. Uh Uh-huh. Maybe this will catch on. (laughs) No, it's, yeah, it's great because even though, for example, as we spoke with Nick last week, it's an early modern building. It's Tudor, it's black and white, it's got the exposed wood beams. But as we know, the medieval and the early modern, they, they overlap quite a bit. I mean, it is very distinctly, I think, a bit more the early modern. But even despite, you know, the medievalness of these buildings, I think those are great examples to point at what we're talking about. So even yeah. if it's not medieval, it's still the visualize same. visualize it. Right, like atmosphere and kind of occurrence of what's happening. I mean, we also went on the trip to Oxford with Bob. And so for our listeners, that's another one where it's like you go to this town and you think it's all medieval. And it's not a lot of these buildings have been built at the same time. And that's much more of the medieval Gothic kind of revival and everything. But I'm trying to think, does Oxford have any buildings that are like... Actually, there are a couple. There's a couple of faculties that are actually aren't theoretically, like they're they're very like modern and modernist and brutalist. And there's actually quite a few student residence houses which are like on this brutalist style. And then near it, you have like these super like fancy and gothic architecture. Isn't um, like St. Anthony's an example of that? Isn't that yeah. like a 60s building, but then one of the rooms 
in it yeah, is like I think it's got a 14th pillow. century or something. Yeah, it's like yeah, really yeah. I think there's old. a ca- maybe it's a library actually because I've okay. got like the I think I don't remember. I've not been there in a long, long time, but like I think they've got like the accommodation. Everything's modern, and then you have like this one. I'd say like pillar that's like super super gothic inducing or inspiring <laughs> inspiring <Pun. Yeah. laughs> so um, that's a weird phrase of ter- turn of phrase but yeah <laughs> Amelia I had a quick question and this will lead into the British library because it's red brick but I'm just wondering why like red brick at least in your essay is medieval um because we also think of medieval buildings as like slate or other kind of like river stones Mm -hmm. and everything so I was just curious as to why red brick is a medieval or medievalism modern medieval however you want to think of it (laughs) uh, material I think it's more of a modern medieval okay um it's actually a lot of early brick buildings in England were created in the sort of 16th century so Mm -hmm. that's not particularly medieval but um, it was still sort of seen as a, you know, a lot of um, 18th century London is built in stone. So if you think about, you know, the long streets of, um, you know, sort of from Regent's Park, Regent Street down to Oxford Circus, there's all those, you know, big facades and sort of white stone. Um, and then in the 19th century with um, a lot of new industry, brick became once more the thing to do. So that's almost sort of the more modern side of the modern medieval. Um, but then, for example, for the Lillington Gardens estate, you know, if you think of other buildings made in London, 50s, 60s, 70s, you know, think of those ones south of the river, like the National Theatre or the Barbican, they're all these giant, you know, concrete, brutalist things. And actually, the architects of Lillington Gardens decided to go back to brick, not just to create, you know, dialogue with the brick church in the middle, but also for reasons such as they thought, you know, brick was a lot better you know to counter the London pollution because concrete gets really dark and grubby and dirty because of you know all the smog that's everywhere and pollution so instead of going for concrete or concrete cladding they still use a little of it but they mainly use brick that becomes a modern but old material used then Mm -hmm. okay also it's great because you learn stuff that you you know, you walk past something and you don't really realise and don't really know the reason behind something. Mm. And you've given us so many answers. It's great. Yes. Um, do you mind telling us more about the specificities of the St Pancras train stations for those who may not have gone there? So this is this giant monumental building that includes this sort of front facade, which was a hotel, then was disused for a lot of years and is a hotel again. And then behind this giant train. Um, so that has the platforms, the ticket barriers, where you get onto the train and it sort of continues following the trains as they draw out of the station and, you know, going up into the north. And this was, you know, it opened in 1868. Okay. So quite a similar, you know, time frame in the decade to St. James the Less. But this was designed primarily by George Gilbert Scott, another George, another very prolific Victorian Gothic revival architect. And there's various things which make this building modern medieval. So the front hotel has, as you've mentioned, this beautiful structural polychromy. It's red brick, but also bits of yellow and orange brick. It has these Venetian-style buildings, again, inspired by John Ruskin and his love of, you know, continental Gothic. And it was also very inspired by the Ypres Cloth Hall in Belgium. So this was a medieval building. It was a civic one. So as opposed to a lot of the other you know, medieval inspirations like cathedrals, this was a secular inspiration. And this cloth hall in the town of Ypres um, 
is sort of similar. Well, St Pancras is similar to it, so it's this giant building where all the merchants and birds of the town would meet. And it has, you know, a lot of small fine details of tracery and stuff in the big tower. Um, this was actually bombed in the First World War when Ypres was absolutely flattened. We actually can still see it today because it's been rebuilt in an exact replica. So that's actually its own fun modern medieval building. Because unlike the others we talk about, you know, the, the, the building, not the same, but built to look exactly the same. Mm-hmm. So if you went there now and you didn't know it had been, you know, sort of flattened, I, you wouldn't realise, you'd think, oh yeah, that's this building from, you know, 600 years ago. So yeah, that's, that's some of the inspiration for St Pancras. But then the back bit, the train shed, this has this giant glass and iron roof. And that was designed by these architects called Barlow and Ordish. And iron at the time was still quite a new, exciting industrial material to be using. I mean, it creates this sort of cathedral-like space that's filled with light, filled with space. Um, it rises really high. And again, it's very monumental. So it kind of shows this clash between a very religious search inspiration for the medieval and a very secular civic one. Um, and it's all united together in this in this train station and hotel. That's great, especially because it's such a great example of the industrialization and then also this kind of thinking of it's not the pastoral, but the yeah, the grand kind of innovation of the Gothic medieval during the Gothic revival. It's wonderful. Um, thank you. Thank you. <laughs> and so, as we've mentioned before, Amelia, St. Pancras, this building, is just a hop, a skip, and a jump from the British Library, which is all red brick. And it was built about 100 years later, so the 1960s, <laughs> 1970s. Can you please tell us more about the British Library? Because it's an institution now as well as what inspired you a bit more to contrast the two, aside from just their you know, proximity to one another. So the British Library, as you know, a collection of books, it has been a thing for centuries, but in about the 70s, I think, it was commissioned as a project. And I think actually they created this competition for architects to enter and design. Similarly to Lillington Gardens, actually, they created this architect competition and people would submit their proposals and the winner was this architect called Collins of St John Wilson um, working with another one called MJ Long you know this was a giant project because there's sort of more than 30 million books so (laughs) yeah so you have to create this building which contains all these books I can't even say hundreds millions of books Um, and it has to have this depository space it has to have reading space it has to have you know social space um, and they chose this site, which was, you know, right next to these two big train stations. And I think it was an old, you know, train station coal yard sort of depository site. Mm-hmm. And right next to um, quite a deprived area of London, actually. They knocked some of it down, knocked a lot of housing down to create this. Like the estate around the church, it was actually designed to be sympathetic. And I think that's a quote from the you know, proposal with St Pancras next door. Mm-hmm. So, you know, it wasn't meant to be constructed in exactly the same style but it was meant to you know not be this thing that looks completely out of space in you know in the street environment so the architects ended up creating this really gigantic building um which goes you know a lot of floors underground you know we could compare it to go back to harry potter if you want to (laughs) which has you know it's, it's a small building not that big from outside but you go down and there's just layers and layers of people's vaults with their money and you know you have to take a little cart and go down yeah um, the British Library doesn't have you know dragons down there as well. <laughs> um, <laughs> we know of. 
yes <laughs> so many books um and manuscripts and everything and actually it's quite nice because in the very middle in in the heart there's a sort of it's like a pillar but it's not and it's called the king's depository and it has loads of old books you know 300 400 years old manuscripts that are even older and it was the old king's collection can't remember which king right now and that's kind of encased in glass and iron again and you know it's a bit less accessible because you can't just go up to it and grab a book and it creates a sort of shrine to the medieval in the very middle of this giant you know 80s 90s building yeah i love shrine to the medieval it's mm. such a nice <laughs> yeah. evocative turn of phrase yes I, I googled while you were talking. It's the, the historical collection. So numerous donations and acquisitions from the 18th century. Uh, these include the books and manuscripts of Sir Robert Cotton, Sir Hans Sloane, Robert Harley, and the King's Library of George III, as well as the old royal library donated by King George II. Thank you. So for our audience who maybe the British Library is ringing a bell, but you can't quite your ping- put your finger on it, um, the British Library is very famous for housing one of the two, I believe, copies of the Magna Carta, which is a 13th century document, very early. So it's 1215, which was a royal charter that um, allowed rights agreed to by King John of England at Renamede near Windsor. And it's, yeah, <laughs> it's <laughs> one of the most important, influential Western European documents yeah. in history. So that is one of the documents that's part of this shrine to the medieval that is, I mean, it's amazing how you walk into the building and it's so open. It's definitely part of that 1970 style and you walk up the steps and then you're just kind of, you're almost confronted by this Mm. floors upon floors stack of leather bound back books that are, as you mentioned, behind glass that's temperature and humidity moderated. Mm -hmm. But you can walk around the pillar, which is really cool, and the cafe is right there. So I love sitting next to these old texts because there is like that aura radiating off of them or essence of history. I mean, these have survived centuries. Mm -hmm. And in your essay, Amelia, you talk about how it's almost kind of um, like an altar. And I mean, if you think of it, the, the British Library in a sense, is like a place of academic worship or historic worship where so much scholarship is done. Yeah, and the appreciation of knowledge. Because mm-hmm. we, so a lot of old churches and monasteries would have chained libraries. And, you know, so the books were literally chained to the walls because they were so precious. N- knowledge was so precious, manuscripts were so precious. And in someone like the British Library, you, you can't grab a book and take it home and, you know, take mm-hmm. it back in two weeks a little library card you have to stay there and read it and in some of them actually you know you can't even touch the books you have to put on gloves to protect them because they're so old and a chained library sounds like you know knowledge which is inaccessible but actually it's you know more about preciousness of these books and so the British Library keeps up that kind of idea anyone can go make a reader's pass anyone can go read these books they're still seen as you know so exciting and something really precious and that has to be looked after properly yeah I have many experiences of getting books out and then getting told off because I've got a pen and not a pencil. So, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> my brain, as you were talking, because the pop culture trash monster that I am, yes. I was thinking <laughs> in Harry Potter once again when Harry goes into the forbidden book section mm-hmm. and how the books are chained. But that's yeah. because these are like curse books, you know, yeah. as he opens the book and the face comes out of it, you know, and as a nine year old, it's terrifying. It's and so then. Scary. 
thinking of it being precious, my head just instantly went to Gollum. <laughs> the ring that rules them all. You know, precious. Um, but I mean, yeah, extraordinary. And it really does meld in with that area quite well, even though it's behind a wall when you're walking down the street. And then it has those cast iron gates that say British Library and Changing Fonts, yeah. which is really cool. I mean, it has that huge courtyard. It yeah. also, you mentioned your essay has a, a clock tower kind of built into it or a, a mm-hmm. campanile, not necessarily a clock tower, but it has a clock face on it. It doesn't like stand alone into the sky. It's kind of against the building, but you can tell it's its own structure. Yeah. And it creates a nice little dialogue again with the clock tower of um, St. Pancras. Yeah. And then again, as you're saying, it's massive building. It's very uh, tricky when you go outside of it. You can tell it's large, but as you were saying, because it kind of goes underground and all that. I mean, it's huge. Um. <laughs> <laughs> I feel like also you kind of realize that when you go into the um, the humanities reading room one, I think, and then like you realize you go in and you're like, all right, that's not that big. And then you kind of go a bit further and you see that there's like three floors of that and you're like, yeah. oh my God. <laughs> and that's just a one section. Yeah. But when you look at it just off the street and thinking of, you know, we've talked about horizontality and verticality, it's quite long and it's not too tall. Like it's not taller than St. Pancras. Yeah. So it again has that kind of harmony of elongation and vertical, uh, like stretching. Absolutely wonderful. Honestly. Uh, oh, this amazing. has been great. <laughs> you know, thank you. Thank you. And so kind of like as a final thing, a bit different to what we've asked you so far, um, what is your favourite random medieval fact, if you have one? I think one thing I really like is, um, you know, all the fun little things you find in medieval manuscripts. So A, there's, as you've already talked about, marginalia and little comments written by monks to each other, just discussing things and, you know, kind of how we'd thought, unless you were a good student, you, you know, pass little notes to each other in class. So. <laughs> Obviously, I would never do that. But then other things like often in manuscript illumination, lots of like little snails as creatures would always pop up and like be fighting knights. And yeah, we we tend to not think of snails as such a threat now unless it's to your garden cabbages. But um, I really love that. And, you know, all the sort of bestiary monsters like blemies and cyapods who like, you know, just have one giant foot or <laughs> blemies, which is instead of a head, they just have their face and their stomach. And I've just really enjoyed them. They come up a lot on Mappamundi, which are these medieval maps of the whole world. And yeah, that was really fun because, you know, often Jerusalem or something would be at the middle, in the middle. And it's just interesting to think about how our perspective of the world changes so much. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and now we show a map in a different way, but we still have all these problems with how to show, you know, a spherical earth, flat earth, no, <laughs> a spherical earth, you know, on a flat surface um, and how our kind of, the view of what the world looks like on a map is always a bit distorted. I can't recall her name. I'll have to put it in like show notes or something. But there's a um, American, um, she's a feminist and also very into like people's rights and BIPOC and everything. And she has been for over 50 years. But she mm-hmm. does this amazing video where she has in the floor of her house, like six different maps of the world. Oh, that's cool. And shows how disproportionate they are. Like America and some of them is like larger than Africa, which just isn't true. Mm-hmm. And some of them, there are islands missing or, so it just shows, like you're saying, like the distortion and the politics of viewing and being in the world. So it's like a modern day version of the medieval, but the medieval, I give them more credit because they just honestly <laughs> didn't know. They, they couldn't know, like, they couldn't know. The Americas they tried existed. 
And it was more yeah. fun, like the you know prior John off in the distance with all these magical individuals to explain something rather than like our country's better. We're gonna make it three times larger on the map. <laughs> or put it in the middle. I remember when I was studying in America, I ended up I just looked at like an American map of the world, and America's in the middle, and I was like, yeah. And I was like, well, no, that makes sense. But like, I've like, never seen a map like that. And I was like, oh, so I guess, yeah, in other places in the world, they'll be more towards the centre. And that makes so much sense. Like, why Why should England be? <laughs> yeah, well, we, we know why. Imperialism. But <laughs> That's great. Love it. Thank you, Amelia, so much. Been Hopefully you've had honor. a good time. And I've had so much fun. Thank you again for letting me witter on a bit. <laughs> <laughs> Our pleasure. Well, Yes, and we'll definitely have you back to talk about um, Fantasia, medieval music, and all of that. I think that will be a really fun um, episode. Yes, me. Yes. <laughs> Woohoo! <laughs> Amelia, um, is there anywhere that our audience could find you if they wanted to? Social media, or we know that you're in music, so if there's any sort of musical comings or recordings you want to share? Yes, thank you for asking. I will be cheeky and go plug my band's single, Go Stream Carousel by Entropies. You can find us on SoundCloud, um, Spotify, also I think Apple Music. And yeah, that's Carousel by Entropies. We have new songs coming soon. (laughs) Great. Um, That's so exciting. Um, And we'll include that information in our show notes. So for those of you you. who say, I don't know how to spell that or I couldn't find it, have no fear. We will will be linked. (laughs) That for you. Um, so Amelia, if you can just hang on while we now say where our audience can find us in case they forgot or just <laughs> love hearing all of our places that they can find us. So Ello, why don't you get us going? So <laughs> you can find us on Spotify, on Apple Podcast, on SoundCloud, just by typing Modern Medieval, the podcast. And you can find us on Instagram by typing podcast.modern.medieval, as well as Twitter and Facebook. Um, But I'm not ever so sure what our names are. So Megan, please. (laughs) Yes. Yeah, we're available on Twitter. Definitely getting more involved in the Twitter sphere, tweeting a lot. Uh, Lots of exciting things. Yeah. Um, And you can find us there. Our handle is at medieval underscore modern. Though, if you type in the name of the podcast, we should pop up with our icon of Livy in the pink illuminate M of the manuscript. And then on Facebook, we have a group that is public. And we also, the tech savvy geniuses that we are, just figured out how to make a Facebook page that is hosted, (laughs) that hosts the group. Um, And that's public as well. We'll keep updates running there. So that is. Email us. Yep, email us. us. Good old fashioned email, and that is modern.medieval.podcast at gmail.com. Please send us your comments, questions, queries, anything. fact checks, anything, even just like a funny medieval meme. We're For here. Sure. We want it. Ideas. We want it. And as always, please, 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 please comment us, like us, share <laughs> us, you know, keep the energy going. Thank you from the bottom of our hearts. Yes. And thank you for listening. Hopefully you enjoy this and learn something. So talking about the energy, Amelia, at the end of our episodes, we trump it out. However, I'm also thinking that this week maybe it would be more fitting for us to like choo-choo train out. I don't know. Oh my God. Yeah. Yeah. So like, you know, choo-choo. Amelia, will you join us in our medieval choo-choo training out? 
I absolutely will do. Yes, please. <laughs> Wonderful. So until next time, I'm Megan. And I'm Ello. And this is Modern Medieval, the podcast. Choo! Choo! <laughs> <laughs> chugga, chugga. <laughs>